0: If you're new here, or you're not used to the Psalms, and you're singing through that, I'm, I'm sure if you were thinking about what you were singing, you were going, "What? <laughs> Wait a minute! It's, every every verse gets more depressing. You know, the next thing it'll be maggots eating our bodies, and uh, and so on." Listen, what you just sang was the truth, and you know that. What do you come to church for? To be told stuff that keeps you away from the reality? That's the reality. And then that last verse. This is the most amazing thing because. Those first verses that we sang of that part of the psalm tell us the reality for everybody. But that last verse gives us a hope that really is quite extraordinary. And uh, I hope that uh, as we look at what we're going to do just now, Isaiah chapter 48, um, it's a a tough part of the Bible, I think. Uh, I hope that as we look at this, that you will... um, See the hope that we really do have in Christ. Uh, turn to uh, Isaiah 48, and let me begin by just asking a very simple question. I don't know if you've ever thought, if I just had a wee change of scene, that would really, really do me good. Um, you know, I'm thinking of a call to the Bahamas just now because I hate Novembers. You know, some people say they don't like Mondays. I, I just don't like Novembers uh, at all. And, uh, This, I mean, look at it, it's just dreek, it's not even cold, it's just like dreek and gray and miserable and and, and drab, so I think, okay, at least in November, maybe November, uh, December, January, February, South Africa, the Bahamas or something, I could feel a call, and you feel, well, yeah, I could do with a change, you know, I, I could do with a change of job, I could do with a change of course, I could do with a change of city, I could do with a change of church, Some people may even think, you know, I could do with a change of partner or a change of friends. If only my circumstances would change, then things would be better. Well, God's people in Isaiah 48, they must have been thinking like that. They, if only we could return to Jerusalem, they'd been exiled from Jerusalem. But as we'll see as we read through this and look at it, uh, Isaiah as been telling them that they need a whole lot more than that. The biggest change that we need is not in our circumstances, but in our heart. And you'll find that this chapter, which we get, this section which began in Isaiah 40, it ends with Isaiah 48. We're only going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. And then from 49 onwards, really Isaiah 40 To 48 are describing the problem. Isaiah 49 onwards is describing God's answer to the problem, which is his son, Jesus Christ. Now, what we're going to look at is a dark picture. It's in the midst of a dark picture. And we live in a dark world. We live in a world which you can go to a cafe or a restaurant or a football match or a rock concert in the capital of love or whatever you want to call it and you can be shot or blown up. What can we do about it? We can color our buildings in solidarity. We can change our Facebook profiles. We can even say that we are praying. We can rage and write and pontificate about whose fault it is. But at the end of the day, anything that we do, it just seems so futile. God's people at this time, the Jewish people, At the time of this, prophecy must have had the same feeling. Why are the walls broken down? Why are there barbarians in the gate? Why are human beings allowed to do such evil things to one another? Why doesn't God just make us kinder or wipe out all those who do harm? That latter question, the Bible's answer, is fairly straightforward. And actually, uh, before we read God's word, let me just tell you, uh, you see the answer there, Solzhenitsyn. If only, he says, there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. See, our politicians and our commentators don't get that. They just think there's the good guys and there's the bad guys. Let's get rid of the bad guys but you and I, we are the good guys and we are the bad guys. And Solzhenitsyn's insight, remember, uh, you may not know, but Solzhenitsyn was in the gulag in Soviet Russia. He was severely persecuted as a a Russian uh, intellectual. Who is willing, he says, the line dividing good and evil goes through our own hearts. It doesn't go between races. It doesn't go between religions. It doesn't go between individuals it goes right through our own hearts and who is willing to destroy his own heart so then the answer would just simply be surely well shouldn't we just make change our hearts shouldn't we make us kinder and this week I was listening to a program about uh, drugs in sport and the question was asked in the course of this program about drugs that you know that help you win things what if you could invent a pill that made people kinder Should we not just give it to them? And one of the questions, a really interesting question. What if we could invent a pill that made people fall in love? Now, some of you who are a bit desperate might think that's a really good idea because if I could just give give her this pill, then she'd fall in love with me. Now, if you could invent a pill like that, would it really be love? And if you had a pill that could make people kinder, would that be the right thing to do? Well, the trouble is, if you did that, you're accepting a view of humanity is that we are just robots. And kindness is really not kindness at all then, is it? It's just a chemical reaction. And so you, the very thing that makes us human, we're saying, take it away. In order to preserve humanity, we're going to destroy humanity. That doesn't make sense. How does God deal with such evil Without destroying humanity or turning us into robots? The whole of the Bible story is the answer to that question. It goes from us being thrown out of paradise to humanity being welcomed into the heavenly city in Jerusalem right at the end in Revelation. How can we have reality and goodness and truth and beauty? And there isn't a single, you can read all the articles you want and watch all the television programs you want, you will not find a single answer to that, which is real. But in God's word, you will. And that's where we come in here. Um, I'm sorry about the lengthy introduction, but I thought it was necessary. Um, You need to remember as we read this, that Isaiah 40 is comfort my people, says the Lord, comfort my people. And this is the kind of thing like the psalm that we sang in our world, comfort, comfort. All right, okay, there, there, everything's okay, everything's fine. You know, we are all Paris, we are all all wonderful, we've we've all got wonderful values. Comfort my people, tell them everything's great. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says "Come for my people, tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. And this is what it is. So let's go, Isaiah 48 and verse 1. Listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah, you who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness, you who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and claim to rely on the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty is his name. Earlier, Isaiah had spoken about what was wrong with Babylon. Now he's speaking about what's wrong with the church. It is my absolute conviction that in the United Kingdom, in the West, maybe in other parts of the world as well, but certainly here, that the primary thing that's wrong with the culture stems from what's wrong with the church. And this is going to be a little bit hard to take, but please hang on, okay? Verses 1 and 2 says this to God's people that... We engage in glib religious talk. They were descendants of Jacob, called by the name of Israel, came from the line of Judah. They are the holy city, not a large city. Jerusalem was not a large city then. Um, In small and in in this time, the 6th century BC, it's been taken over, it's run down, its walls are broken, its temple destroyed. Most of its people are in exile, but they are still called the holy city the place where God dwells. They have great privileges. They have an honored name, a real religion, a mighty God to rely on. They have great and precious promises. They have the covenants. They are like us. They are us. We have so much. We have God's word. We have so much history, if you like. We have uh, the teaching. We have everything that God grants to us. We are not being brought up in ignorance of who Jesus is. Yet, look at the end of verse 1, but not in truth or righteousness. They claim to have personal trust and to rely on the God of Israel. They claim to rely on him, but not in truth and righteousness. Second Timothy says this, You must understand this. In the last days, distressing times will come. Here's a description of our world. For people will be lovers of themselves. Narcissistic. Paul foresaw the selfie. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderous, profligates, brutes, haters of good treacherous reckless swollen with conceit lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god holding on to the outward form of godliness but denying its power avoid them i look in a mirror the mirror of god's word and i say simply is that you is that me Am I I somebody who can talk about the beauty of Jesus and the glory of Jesus and the gospel and applaud and clap and, and do all that? And yet, I don't call upon God in truth and in reality. Calvin says, here he attacks hypocrites who with open mouth loudly boasted of the name of God and frequently mentioned his name and yet in their hearts were greatly opposed to him. I've come across many people, many professing Christians, oh they can say the name of Jesus and they can talk the spiritual talk and they have all the jargon and all the words and yet sometimes as you listen to them you're thinking I wish you'd just shut up. Honestly, you know, I don't believe you. It's just talk. Talk, talk. It's religious talk. And this is what God says to, through Isaiah. He's saying to his people, you've got the name, you've got the city, you've got the word, you've got everything, except not in truth and righteousness. You don't mean it. And it gets worse. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. And suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago before they happened. I announced them to you so that you would not say, My idols did them. My wooden image and metal God ordained them. God says about his people that there's not genuineness or truth. He then says that they had become stubborn. Their suffering taught them nothing. They were brash. They were cantankerous. And when he uses this thing about the neck, the stiff neck, that carries this idea of being incapable of submission, a a refusal to put a yoke of submission onto God. The person who says, no, I'm going to cope. I'll survive. I will do this. Stiff-necked. And the forehead of bronze, that's just an image uh, a metaphor for being opinionated and close minded, refusing to acknowledge any fault when they were rebuked for their conduct. And you know how good we are at that. We deflect straight away. I, I, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. Somebody critiques me, and I'm straight in, and I'm good, argued. You know, you want to go for me, I'm going to beat you up. You know, that's just the way it is verbally. You throw me an arrow, I'll bounce it back. And you'll get a nuclear bomb in return. So don't do it. Except this. The wounds of a friend are faithful. And God comes and he talks to his people and he tells his people. And yet they are stubborn. And they have foreheads of bronze. They refuse to acknowledge any fault. Now I've got a confession to make. I like Downton Abbey. I'm sorry. I realize that that does away completely with my cool image and, and all the rest of it. But I do. I actually do quite like *Downton Abbey*. I know it's banal. I know it's unrealistic. I know it's just wallpaper sap, but it's it's quite nice wallpaper sap. I don't take it too seriously, okay? But I do quite like it. And uh, for those who are watching on catch-up, too bad. I'm going to do a, a plot spoiler just now. Uh, Lady Mary is horrible to her sister. Now, I quite like Lady Mary. And those of you who don't know what Downton Abbey is, don't worry. You've not missed out on a great cultural experience. You continue with your Shakespeare and your opera. That'll be fine. But Lady Mary is very horrible to her sister. And Tom, good old Tom, Irish Tom, kind Tom, comes along and kind of tells her directly to her face, rebukes her. But she doesn't take it to heart. And in the last episode she does something, I'm not going to say what it is she does something really horrible and really nasty that makes you as you're watching you "You know I could strangle that woman what she's just done to her sister why did she do it? she did it because of stubbornness of heart refusing to listen refusing to face up to reality of course it being Downton Abbey Tom and Granny eventually get through to her but who knows what will happen then you just have to watch and see but that is like us, isn't it? That God speaks to us, and for a while, he may get through to us, and we may feel it, we may sit in church, and we may squirm, or we may read the Bible, say, okay, 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 I got it, I got the message. But then we stubbornly, stubbornly continue. We refuse to listen. He goes on to say this. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? From now on, I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. They are created now and not long ago. You've not heard of them before today, so you cannot say, yes, I, knew, I know of them. You've neither heard nor understood. From of old, your ear has not been opened. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You were called a rebel from birth. He says, look at them all. Now, it's an unusual word he has for look there because it means vision. And it's really saying, have you got no spiritual Vision. And that's a big problem for many of us as Christians, for many of us in the church, for the church as a whole, is that we don't see as God sees. We don't have a spiritual vision. And we don't have that because we don't listen. And here's the extraordinary thing about this passage. It's saying God has opened up his word to them. God has told them new things. And there's a a, a sense in which the language that is used is actually very emotional. And if you can imagine this. You imagine sitting down, if, if you're married with your, your spouse, or sitting down with a really, really good friend who you really love, or sitting down with a child, and maybe your, your mother tells you or your spouse tells you, and they, they tell you stuff that is so intense and so deep. It's not going on Facebook. It's not, it, it can't be written anywhere. It it is from their heart. And what they're doing is they're opening up their heart in such a way that with what they tell you, you could rip them apart. Because that's what real friendship is. And that's what real trust is. When you trust people with things that are so precious to you that if people abuse them or take advantage of them, they could really, really hurt you. And what this is telling us is that God has told his people the most extraordinary and the most wonderful things. And his people have taken his precious word and they've ignored it and they've despised it. Jesus, that's why Jesus, you get Jesus saying, if you've got ears, listen, if you've got ears, listen. Or Stephen, as he was being martyred in Acts 7, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, you know, people with foreheads of bronze and the stiff necks, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You're forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecuted? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that receive the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. You stiff-necked people. I wonder. You know, i What if you're sitting here as a Christian, and actually much of your Christianity has for years been fake? You've been faking it for years, and you've just not been listening. God's been speaking to you, and you've not been listening. You can talk to God, and you can talk about God, but you've not been listening. And God uses the argument from prophecy against his own people. He said, I prophesied, I know, it's my word, but you have been treacherous and rebellious. You've devoted yourself to idols, and that means you've become devoted to yourself. Israel has let the world squeeze her into its mold. It was ever thus. I don't know if this chapter is not the most dark picture of the state of the church that you will ever read in the Bible. It's darker than the faithlessness of Isaiah 40. It's darker even than the coldness of Isaiah 43. This is God's people turning and rejecting and refusing to hear the Father as he speaks with the Father's heart to his children. And God is saying to them, you don't need a change of address. You don't need to come back to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if you're in Babylon or in Jerusalem or at the ends of the earth. You need a change of heart. And at the end of the day, I suspect, for me certainly, and I suspect for most of you, if you are a Christian, the biggest change in your circumstances that you need right now is not a change in your circumstances, it's a change in your heart. And that's certainly true for the church in the United Kingdom today. We need to repent and return to the Lord. The Lord, he says, is revealing new things. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. What is God actually saying? We're going to learn some things. Let's go on, we'll go on to verse 9. First of all, about God's patience. Actually, I was thinking about this this week, and, and someone sent me a wee clip of Alistair Begg, which if you, if you go on my blog, you can get it, which I just absolutely loved because I'd been watching some stuff um, from some Christian preachers. and it, Do you know what? Sometimes we talk gobbledygook. You know, it's just, you're looking at me going, what what are you saying? You know, and it's like a jargon that's just completely incomprehensible. And it's not the word of God. And Alistair Begg, uh, I got sent this week clip, he was just introducing a sermon. And I'll share it with you because I thought it was brilliant. He said he'd been in a church in California, and he was there, and it was one of these churches that had a big clock that five minutes to go you can tell it's not St. Peter's, because it started exactly on the dot. It counted down, you know, five minutes, four minutes, 59 seconds, four minutes, 58 seconds. and then zero, zero, bang, band starts up, everything precisely on time, everything immaculate, everything wonderful. And then about 10 minutes later, the guy stands up to begin the service, or whatever it is to introduce, and says, "How are you feeling?" And Alistair Begg, you have to say, I, I mean, he's got such a passion for the Scotsman. And he said, "How am I feeling? How, that's how you begin worship. How y'all feeling?" He says, "I, I, you don't want to know how I'm feeling, especially after that first ten minutes. You'd think I wasn't even a Christian if I told you how I was feeling." He says, I'm barely ambulatory. I, can, I've, I, I get up in the morning on a Sunday morning. I kick the dog. I don't even have a dog. And he goes on and on and on, you know, like that. He says, I spill my coffee. Someone takes my parking place. How am I feeling? I'm feeling rotten. Don't ask me how I'm feeling. What do you got to give? Nothing. I've got nothing to give. Don't ask me about giving. You know, tell me, says Beg. And I think this is great. Tell me what I know about God tell me about God. How I'm feeling is irrelevant. And you don't really want to know how I'm feeling. And that's what happens here because God comes to his people and he says, you are just not listening. You are just not listening. And he challenges. And then he teaches us about himself. Firstly, that he's patient. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. You see, there's a danger, isn't there, that we feel this. When we've wandered a bit from God, you know, the first time we do it, we think, uh-oh, oh, this is serious. But then we wander from God and God lets us be. Nothing happens to us and we think, oh, that's Okay. I can carry on doing this. So you can come to church here and you can sing and you can talk and you can pray and you can praise and you can go away and your heart can be as cold and as icy as it was when you came in and it doesn't seem to make any difference to your life. You get on with your job, you get on with your work, you get on with the problems and the issues and the difficulties that you have and God doesn't fit in anywhere. And you begin to think, maybe I can get away with this. Maybe God doesn't really care. Actually, God does care. He's just being patient, incredibly patient with us. He is the Lord Almighty, as verse 2 has said. His people may have let them down, but he's not going to let them down. He acts for his name's sake. What he's revealed himself to be, what he's promised to do, he will always remain true to his word. There is nothing that God has said about himself in his word which is not true, and there is nothing that God has said Will happen, which will not happen. There is no doubt about that. But God is patient. And a sensitive Christian who understands what's going on in the world and who understands who God is, is a Christian who will be able to pray, How long, O oh Lord? How long? How long will you let this continue? Why are you letting this continue? Because God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. Those who are crying out, well I wish God would do something about ISIS and and what's going on in Paris and elsewhere. If they understood that what's going on in Paris is also going on in Baghdad, is also going on in Nairobi, is also going on throughout the world and has gone on and continues to go on since mankind fell, then you would know that God sees and feels the horror far more than we do and is angry far more than we are and the only reason he hasn't finished it is because he is patient as Peter puts it not wanting anyone to perish secondly God's refining see I've refined you though not as silver I've tested you in the furnace of affliction here is an interesting thing God refines his people for transformation not for destruction The Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord doesn't punish us to destroy us. Though not of silver. That's very interesting. What does he mean? When silver is refined, you've got the silver. But around the silver, you've got a lot of dross. And so when silver is refined, you blast it, you burn it, until the dross is gone and the silver remains. But such is our state that if God was to refine us like that, what would be left? there's no silver. That's why we're not refined as silver. It's not like there's some heart of gold within us and God's just burning away the rough edges. We need a total transformation. First Peter 1 says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in this you rejoice even if now for a little while you've had to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold that though perishable is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed ah you say that's a contradiction because You just said we're not refined as by silver. Now you're saying we're refined as by gold. The same process. The answer is take the whole passage. The answer to that is very straightforward. If you were to be refined by God on the basis of who you are and what you have done, there's nothing left. If you are to be refined by God on the grounds of the new birth into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the, the the inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Then that will be tested. And that will be proven to be real. How do you know your faith is real? Because I said at the beginning, we're going through this, and we're saying, well, okay, how do I know I'm not fake? Because my heart's desperately deceitful, and I could convince myself that I was being real, and I wasn't. Here's how you know. When God tests you in the furnace of affliction, that's when you know. That's when you know how real your faith is. Not when you become a millionaire, when you lose all your money. Not when you're running around fit and healthy, but when you discover you've got cancer. Not when your child is born fit and healthy, but when someone close to you dies. That's when you really know what your faith is and how real it is. John L. Mackay says this, the furnace of affliction was a divinely controlled process motivated by a love that would reclaim them and terminated by sovereign grace. When God says, enough, stop, enough. God knows the trouble and the difficulty and the things that you have. Think about this if you are a Christian just now. You may feel that you're going through the furnace of affliction. You may feel that it's out of control, but it's never out of control. God knows and he's not doing it to torture you he's not allowing it in order to to manipulate or to twist he only allows it because he loves you and that seems so hard to grasp and understand Psalm 118 verse 18 the lord has punished me severely but did not give me over to death but there's another great reason about why we shouldn't despair in the midst of the most dreadful circumstances For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. I'm so sick and tired of religious leaders, Christian leaders in this country when tragedies happen thinking that they have to stand up and apologize for God. God is abused and mocked and they go along with it. Ah, well, but, you know, yes, but, ah, but this. God says, I will not let my name be defamed. And here's why. And you need to grasp this. It's not Bel and not Nebo or Cyrus who ruled the world in Isaiah's day. And in today's day, it's not ISIS. It's not Holland. It's not Cameron or Obama or Putin. It's not Mohammed or Buddha or Marx or any human philosophy. It's not you. It's not me. It is God. And God says, this is for my glory, and I will do this, and I will press on. And even though you, my people, have been treacherous and hard-hearted and cold, I will not allow my name to be defamed because of your treachery. And what he's saying is this, that as the devil came in, And the beginning of the earth, and remember God created, it was good. God created, it was good. God created, it was good. And then God created men and women, and it was very good. And as the devil came in and through the very good sought to disrupt and poison and destroy and mock God's creation, the Lord said, no, it's not going to happen, and this is how I'm going to deal with it. And what he says is, I will press on with my new creation. I will eradicate evil within creation without eradicating the apex of that creation, humanity. The whole creation groans, says Paul. It groans, longing for the children of God to be revealed. Why? Because it's through the children of God that the new creation comes. And God says, I'm not going to let the devil prevail against the church. The gates of hell will not prevail the forces of history, the power of sin, they will not win. God says, I will save. And you might look and say, well, why would you save me? And God says, for my own glory. And instead of, as a sinful person thinking, but surely you should save me for myself. Do you realize how comforting it is to know that God is going to save you for his glory and not for yours? Because it will definitely happen. He will not allow the devil to win. I go back to that Acts passage with Stephen being stoned, Acts seven fifty four. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they all went, wow, please, let's become Christians. No, this is what they did. They covered their ears. Remember? Stubborn, hard-necked, foreheads as bronze. And with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. And verse one of chapter eight says, and Saul approved of their killing him. He didn't go, oh, that's horrible. He approved that this young man who prayed for his enemies was stoned to death. And you're thinking, do you know, if we could have drones in those days, we would get Saul. Jihadi John, Jihadi Saul. Surely God should just zap him and that would be it but God said, I will not let my name be defamed. And Saul became Paul. And Paul wrote a third of the New Testament and planted many of the churches in the New Testament. So here is my comfort and here is your comfort in the world of darkness in which we live. And it is simply this. Our God will not be defamed. He will be glorified. He connects our salvation with his glory and therefore his church cannot be destroyed. There will be a bride for the bridegroom and that bridegroom will be glorious. And tomorrow when I stand at the graveside in what is probably going to be a cold and wet and windy Montrose, I will tell the people I will tell Russell's sons, this is not a defeat. This is something glorious. This is something wonderful because God has redeemed another one of his people and taken them home to be with himself. Please do not despair at the darkness within or the darkness you see without because the light has come the coldness you feel in your own heart ask God to take that away and realize isn't it wonderful that your salvation doesn't ultimately depend on you and you fixing your own heart it depends on him and what he is doing and if you're not a believer what a God to come to the one who says I will accept you and I will take you And I will fill you, and I will change you, and I will use you. And I will never let you go, because once you are mine, you are for my glory. And if you're a Christian, and you're really struggling with a whole range of things, whether it's illness, whether it's fear, whether it's finance, whether it's work, whether it's sin, whether it's so many different things, just take great and total comfort in this. That God will be glorified through you because He has promised it. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we are overcome by fears. Sometimes We ask a thousand what ifs. Help us to see what is. That you are our creator, that you are all powerful, that you are good, that you are beautiful, that you are true, that you speak truth, that there is not a word that you speak which is a lie, that you love your people, that you gave your son for your church. That your church shall not be overcome. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not, will not, and cannot overcome it. Grant that your light would shine in our hearts and forgive us when we have been stubborn, when we have been hard-hearted, when we have been cold, when we have been hypocritical, when we have called upon you but not in truth and righteousness. And help us to do so now. In your name, amen.